This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Timothy David Amos, Associate Professor in the Department of Japanese Studies at the National University of Singapore. Dr. Amos is the author of Embodying Difference, The Making of Budakumin in Modern Japan, published by the University of Hawaii Press in 2011. Dr. Amos, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you for having me. In your research, you focus a lot on issues of the budokumin in, in modern Japan, and, and so the, the outcast community from the Edo period. Could you describe for us what happens to the budokumin after the Meiji Restoration? Sure. Um, so as you survey the academic literature on this problem, you see that there are a number of different responses, and, and not all the responses are necessarily in agreement with each other. But I guess one thing that we can say for sure is that post-Meiji Restoration, we do see a considerable amount of continuity in the kinds of discrimination that outcast communities experience. So some of the former practices which involved a kind of a, a segregation, you know, certain practices involving sort of forbidding certain members of outcast communities to to enter into your, your house, you know, having to wait outside on official business, those kinds of things. We see continuities in those things. At the same time, in the fourth year of Meiji, we have the so-called outcast emancipation edict. Now, there are different ways of talking about this document. Some people refuse to call it an emancipation edict and insist instead on calling it a, an edict which simply abolished the use of epithets towards outcasts, while other people talk about it as a document which essentially abolished the system of outcasts from the early modern period. But certainly with the passing of that document, we see changes within outcast communities. One thing I think we can say is that there's a lot of regional difference in how different communities experience that act of so-called emancipation. Some outcast communities we find in the records sort of jumped for joy and, and essentially had a, had a great party when it came to sort of hearing the news of this, this edict. They understood this edict essentially as being now able to essentially be peasants, to, to have last names, to wear clothes just like the peasants wore. While other communities saw this as an opportunity, for instance, to stop doing the kinds of things that they had historically been doing, so to, to, to experience a kind of a liberation from occupations which they thought had been the root cause of the discrimination against them. So there's, there's kind of diversity all around the place concerning how these, these communities experience that, that so-called emancipation edict. Certainly, we also see resistance on the part of other social status groups in society. There are many instances or numerous instances of, of peasant communities being very against the, the effects of this emancipation edict. They essentially see it as, rather than a liberation of outcasts themselves, a kind of a, a demotion for themselves. Um, so they take it upon themselves to kind of reinstate or reinforce older discriminatory regimes against these communities. At another level, scholars point to the ways in which individual outcast communities lose their monopolies on certain occupations where they had gained their livelihood uh, in previous periods, such as leatherwork. And, and also some scholars point to the ways in which regional governments under the new Meiji polity 
simply began to sort of reinscribe at an institutional level, level older forms of discrimination against these communities. As time progresses, we see outcast communities, um, the, the reasons why people discriminate against the outcast communities also slowly changing. Particularly into the 1880s, we see discussions of, of hygiene and the like suggesting that discrimination against these former outcast communities at that time was of a compound nature. So older forms of discrimination become coupled with new, quote-unquote, modern forms of discrimination. I'm going to come back to this question of discrimination and resistance and even some of the reasoning behind the Emancipation Edict, but could you start by talking about what is the position of, I know this is a big question, but you know, what is the lineage of the outcast communities in the early modern period? And then what is the position that they have prior to 1868? Sure. So one of the things I possibly could have mentioned uh, in the beginning, and it's probably a good idea to talk about it now. So one of the things that my research from the very beginning has tried to do is to extend a critical gaze to the question of who is a Barakumin and what exactly is a Baraku area? As I surveyed the literature written p- predominantly in the post-war period in Japan about what we consider to be Baraku communities or Barakumin, I noticed that there's a strong agreement in much of the literature about this question. So essentially, according to this mainstream view or master narrative, as I call it in my book, Barakumin uh, essentially peoples who today we consider to be in a rather straightforward manner linked to early modern and even medieval outcast groups. So there's a, there's a, the common view is that there's a strong kind of continuity, ancestral linkage between people in Baraka communities today and the people of these early modern and, and medieval communities and there's a strong continuity in the location of sort of Baruch communities today and where the former outcast communities were located. Are these the Etahinin communities? Well, in the earlier literature, there was certainly a strong emphasis, um, and we're talking here about 40, maybe 40 or 50 years ago, there was a tendency to see present-day Baraka communities as being linked to both Eta and Hinin communities from the early modern and, and in some cases medieval periods. Over time, scholars came to realize that that's probably erroneous, that a lot of the Keening communities, in fact, sort of disappeared into modernity, that there are very few linkages between, say, early modern Keening communities and present-day Baraka communities. So mostly we're we're looking at uh, Eta communities. However, as my research also progressed. I realized that there were lots of things that couldn't be explained by that kind of narrative. For instance, it's, it's reasonably clear that while there is strong evidence that some, and in fact probably quite a few, medieval outcast communities can be linked to contemporary Baraku communities in terms of sort of location and heritage, at the same time, there are outcast communities that are clearly formed during the early modern period itself. And also, a little bit surprisingly, in the 19th century and even post-Meiji. So although the numbers of these communities aren't necessarily more numerous than the communities that possibly have links to medieval communities, we're in a position at the moment where we're not really sure 
but there's enough counter evidence to suggest that old story may not be as reliable as post-war historians and certainly activists have suggested it was. So this is not to deny continuity between some rather important or, or large outcast communities in, in Kyoto or Nara or, or places like Wakayama, even southern Osaka. But at the same time, it's to say that there are still literally thousands and thousands of outcast villages whose histories are yet to be told. So we need to sort of hold back a little bit on that question of continuities and, and how how firmly we, we read linkages between the past and the present when studying Baraku history. And then in 1871, the Meiji state issues this emancipation edict, as you were describing. What is the reasoning behind this from the perspective of the Meiji state? Is this just one of the reforms, you know, the kind of progressive reforms that the state is introducing? Or, or what are some of the other intended effects? Yeah, so there is actually literature out there that kind of disputes the reason for the, the promulgation of this, this edict. Probably the most straightforward reading of the edict is one in terms of looking at the debates prior to the promulgation of the edict. We see representatives of different domains talking about the need for uniformity, you know, the homogenization of national space. So one of the things that's brought up in a couple of years before the promulgation of the edict is that outcast communities, the, the roads which sort of lead into these communities aren't actually measured on maps. And so in, in order for sort of a uniform system of measurement to take place, we need to eradicate outcast communities. Um, we need to get rid of this altogether. There are other suggestions about the need to, you know, to create a stable tax base because a lot of the land upon which outcast communities were based or, or a fair amount of that land could be non-taxed land. So in order to retrieve all of those pockets of non-tax land and to create a stable tax base, it's important to free outcasts. Certainly, other scholarship talks about the possibility and, in fact, the strong possibility of liberation and emancipation movements around the world during the, the 1860s uh, and even earlier having an impact on this kind of decision. The idea is that in order to repeal the unequal treaties. Japan has to, to present a kind of an image of being civilized. And the presence of outcasts within Japan is certainly not going to lead to a favorable outcome on that front. So there are all of these different reasons that scholars uh, point to as possible reasons for the passing of the edict. There's also research which talks about the influence of important individuals like Oetaku on the final promulgation of the edict itself, somebody who, who did drafts and exerted pressure within the ministry he was working to have this passed. And the timing there, as you mentioned, it's interesting to note that it was just half a decade earlier that in the US, there's the Emancipation Proclamation freeing all the slaves. And so here Japan is having its own Emancipation Proclamation, which brings up a, a couple of, of other questions. One, you know, it, it's of course two haphazard to say the Budakumin are, you know, kind of a racial minority in the in Japan, perhaps, but certainly the way that they're treated and the discrimination continues, as you were explaining before, 
does seem to bear a, a lot of similarities and the resistance at the village level to this emancipation, I, I think, has uh, some similarities. Yeah. So although I think this kind of research is still yet to be done in full, and I think it's a very interesting possible project for somebody, <laughs> I I think one of the things I've been interested in as, I, as I've proceeded with my own research is to think about how the idea that people who we associate with Barakamin, so outcast groups from the early modern period, how a kind of a, a racial diversity or racialization takes place in relation to, to Eta and Hinin from around the beginning of the 18th century onwards. So certainly there are foreign origin theories about outcast groups in Japan that date back that far. And I think those earlier racial origin theories come about for very complex reasons, and they're probably need to be read as, as distinctive from the ones that emerge in the late 19th century, sort of influenced by social Darwinism and the like. But at the same time, there's a way in which these different racial origin theories connect with each other. So the earlier theories certainly fan the flames of the later theories that emerge in the Meiji period about these outcast communities, people we consider today to be the ancestors of Barakamin, not being Japanese. That kind of theory persists strongly in literature right through till about 1918, 1919. It's only then that the historian Kitasada Ikichi refutes it. But even throughout the 20th century, we still see a persistence, particularly in surveys done of the general population. We see a persistence roughly somewhere between 5 and 10% of people continuing to subscribe to the idea that Barakamin are essentially of foreign origin originally. So the racialization of outcasts and people we associate to be the ancestors of Barakamin is a, is a really important dimension to the story of modern Baraku history. In class, when I teach about this, I, I always pull these documents from Miki Sohane's book, Peasants, mm. Rebels, and Outcasts, where talking about some of the village protests and, and these petitions that are put out. I think there's there's one petition from Gifu Prefecture as late as 1914 or so, where they're talking about, you know, these, quote, new commoners, as Budaka communities were called, saying, you know, they're, they're kind of acting haughty, not, not recognizing their base position in society, and they're trying to be like one of us, basically. I, I always talk to the students, you know, this sure looks like some mm -hmm. kind of racial mm -hmm. discrimination. What is happening in the village level after this edict is promulgated? So, again, this is not a story that I think is necessarily being told to anybody's satisfaction yet. But I think we we do see the emancipation edict at the village level meaning for our former outcast communities, these, these new commoners, opportunities. So these opportunities relate to things like education, for instance, so we see certain former outcast villages um, being some of the first communities within their districts to establish schools. Now, I, I haven't seen any research. It could be there, but I haven't seen any research yet that talks about this comparatively and sort of across Japan in total. But I think it's fair to say that some of the outcast communities were the first to establish schools in their areas. And they saw education and schooling as a way forward to kind of make this so-called emancipation a reality. 
This obviously brought, in some cases, uh, in, in fact, some scholars would argue many cases, the communities located nearby felt very antagonistically about this kind of development. There was a refusal to let Baraku youth from, from a certain area come into their schools. So certainly at the school level, we see the persistence of a kind of a segregation. And this is something where there's certainly documentation to hint at these kinds of problems, although some of this documentation I've found in my research is, is also restricted. I've had sort of difficulties in accessing some early Meiji materials and archives. We also find emancipation means not just emancipation from a particular status category, but also the freeing up of space. And so spaces that were formerly restricted to members of former outcast communities, suddenly it's permissible for, for former outcasts to go into them, whether it's bathhouses or village community land or property. And we certainly see sort of pushback on the parts of peasants in relation to these kinds of actions and activities as well. So at a grassroots level, at a village level, I think it's fair to see a kind of a continuity in discrimination and pushback against the effects of the emancipation edict and how that's interpreted in each area by not only local authorities, but also the outcast communities themselves. I recall one anecdote about a Budaku youth who breaks into a shrine and is caught by the villagers and is beaten to death by a mob of villagers. And the perpetrators are apprehended, but the magistrate basically issues this ruling exonerating all of them. And the legal reasoning is, well, a Budaku person is only worth one-fourth of a regular Hamin, a regular commoner. And so unless four Budakumin are killed, then it's not even worth pursuing a trial. Yeah, there are numerous examples of this kind of thing that you can find. Certainly, protests leading to death is something that we find even in the early major period. I think that may be an example from uh, the late Tokugawa period, but, but certainly the idea that outcasts or former outcasts in the early major period are, are acting above their station Sort of early Meiji documentation immediately after the promulgation of the uh, emancipation edict also sort of talks about local communities cautioning former outcast communities not to be haughty. So this idea that they've been emancipated and, and they're sort of sort of strutting around uh, in their new com- newfound commonness is something that you find amongst the complaints in that period. And again, this is I think part of this is. The emancipation edict is is promulgated, but in terms of follow-up legislation, for instance, and how that emancipation is to be lived and felt on the ground, there there is a strong degree of regional sort of interpretation and, and regional practices based on local interpretation lead to different outcomes perhaps many negative consequences as well, such as you you mentioned, losing occupations. Absolutely, yeah. So a lot of my own research was based on Kanto. So I don't know if this is a a deviation, but uh, (laughs) too far of a deviation. But my primary interest in Japan in the beginning was to study the emperor and the imperial institution around the time of Meiji. And it was only after arriving in Japan that some of the historians that I came into contact with 
said, well, you know, the emperor is interesting, but how about you study these people? Um, <laughs> and that's where the journey began quite a long time ago now. But the field that I was in, I was always based in Tohoku during my graduate study period. And so eventually I selected a field that was close to where I was. And it just so happened to be Saitama. So a lot of my research has been in Kanto, focusing on originally Saitama, and then after that, moving to the study of Danzaemon, who was based, sort of lived and, and worked in Asakusa. And then from there, sort of beginning to think about what's going on in Chiba, what's going on in Kanagawa, Gunma, and so on, um, and sort of expanding my research from, from there. Yeah, part of the, the, the project has been sort of based in, in trying to understand what's going on in eastern Japan. And certainly, as you study Danzaemon, you realize that this is indeed a very interesting example of somebody who essentially had a monopoly on leather production for the longest time, who in the beginning of the Meiji period, after the promulgation of the Emancipation Edict, and then in the period after that where all different kinds of entrepreneurs are encouraged to engage in an activity and many entrepreneurs come into the leather industry, here's somebody who, who lost his monopoly. It's, it's kind of very clear and kind of easy to document in a sense. So losing monopoly is, is definitely a story that, that rings very true in that case and I imagine in lots of other cases as well. As you mentioned the, the survey earlier, that there's still a significant, surprising proportion of the Japanese population that thinks the descendants of the Burakumin are non-Japanese. So what kind of continuing discrimination do people of this community face? Yeah, so I mean, that number is certainly, I think, I would be surprised if that figure was still sitting at 10%. I think probably somewhere around 5% or even less these days in terms of people who think Buraku people are of foreign origin. But over time, the kinds of challenges that Buraku communities have faced in terms of discrimination and, and in relation to people's perceptions of them has changed over time. So at the moment, one of the challenges would be in 2002, we have the cessation of the, the special measures law in Japan, which was a, a law that was designed to encourage the assimilation, if you like, at one level of Barakumin into society and Baraku districts into sort of mainstream Japanese society, or certainly a harmonization or, or uh, the, the kind of word you should one should use in relation to that process, I think, can be debated. But since the cessation of the special measures law in 2002, there has been a real lack of money being poured into things like, for instance, educating people about Buraku or outcast history. So what I think we're finding at the moment in Japan is new generations emerging who really don't have any knowledge whatsoever about this history. And so the reasons why these people may have weird perceptions of who Buraku men are and what Buraku communities are is very different to generation earlier generations. It's a kind of a misconceptions based on no information, (laughs) 
rather than in the past sort of misconceptions based on stereotypes rooted in perhaps some kind of experience. So this is the challenge that I think liberation movement activists have today. Uh, Also, the whole sort of online presence of discrimination, people being able to post anything they want in basically complete anonymity has certainly added a lot of sort of tension and some of the major battles being fought at the moment are along these lines of trying to make sure that old lists identifying Baraku areas, for instance, don't freely circulate. The issues surrounding Budaku identity today and the kind of government reaction to it and, and the taking away of the special protections law, these issues and the conversations remind me a lot of similar conversations about Ainu mm. identity today. Mm. Mm. And you could even say Zainichi Korean mm. identity as well. Is there, is there similarities here? Is there some connections mm. here? Yeah. Or are these all three independent cases? Yeah. No, I think, I think this is, I mean, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating area to think about. As you study the Baraku Liberation Movement and the, the Sui Hesha, the National Levelers Movement in the pre-war period, you find that a lot of points that are made, a lot of activism that's engaged in, becomes a kind of a template for other groups within society. Now, I'm not saying that Ainu activists uh, or Zainichi Korean activists borrow wholesale, certainly not, but I think there's a way in which earlier fights by, for instance, the Baraku Liberation League to secure concessions from the Japanese government provides a kind of a model to learn from, a model to sort of borrow from in other groups' attempts to secure concessions from from the Japanese government as well. You know, in terms of of how to, and this is not just in relation to the government, but also sort of how to engage in an activism within society to encourage individuals or or groups who discriminate to think more carefully about what it is that they're doing and to acknowledge the disastrous consequences of their discrimination towards Barakamin. I think it's not just a one-way movement either. I think more work could be done on this, but I certainly think it's two ways. I think the Baraku Liberation League and other groups also learn from these other groups about how to sort of refine or renew their activism in interesting ways. I would imagine, for instance, that early Ainu activism, which kind of attempted to skip over the nation state and engage more globally, I would imagine there's a good case to be made for the Baraku Liberation League learning from that kind of activity, although I haven't seen any research on it yet. One of the dangers Uh, I was reading a very interesting book by one of the foremost scholars on this issue in Japan, Kurokawa Midori, recently. And she emphasized the fact that we need to get the balance right. We need to see how more generic ideas of human rights actually work in everybody's favor (laughs) moving forward to secure better treatment and and better lives for, for minority groups in Japan. But this shift towards human rights discourse that we find in the last few decades in Japan cannot be done at the neglect of understanding the specificities of the experiences and the challenges of each individual group. And I think Kurokawa's point was that that's where we're falling down at the moment. We are kind of losing sight of the specificities of each case and and certainly the racialization of Barakamin over time is a fascinating 
perspective, but at the same time, as, as sort of wonderful research by Jeffrey Bayliss and others point out, there are big differences between how Baraku and Korean communities experience their discrimination and experience the question of belonging in Japan. As you mentioned, this point about the presence of minorities in Japan is a useful reminder that you know this very tired as it is, you know, still resilient narrative that Japan is homogenous. Uh, but now this is a reminder that no, there are many groups in Japan who face discrimination every day. Exactly, and I think this is not my point either. I I, I forget who said it. It may have been Roger Goodman or uh, somebody <laughs> um, who who said that a great litmus test for studying a society is. Or, or a great way of understanding a society is, is examining how they treat their minorities. And I think this is certainly a point that I find to be very true. And I have thoroughly appreciated the two-decade journey I've had to sort of get to know better the experiences and challenges and, and triumphs of this minority group that we've come to talk about as the Barakamun, but which actually is a group which has been stitched together. It's kind of stitching together all the narratives of oppression about all different kinds of people in Japanese history. And it points to all of these stories that need to be told in the past about people who experienced marginalization or who used a certain kind of marginalization to their advantage. That's also There are also very positive stories to be, to be told as well. But this narrative of Japan as a homogenous country, the sooner it dies, better. <laughs> the Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.